I'm in love with my Savior, and He's in love with me. He is with me from day to day, what a friend is He. Watches over me while I sleep, hears me when I pray. I'm as happy as I can be, now I can say. Somebody loves me and He answers my prayers. I love somebody, I know He cares. Somebody tells me not to repine. That somebody is Jesus and I know He's mine. Then at last when our work is done, He will call us home To a mansion He has prepared, never more to roam We'll sit down by the riverside, cares all passed away And with never a pain to bear, what a happy day Somebody loves me and He answers my prayers I love somebody, I know he cares. Somebody tells me not to repine. That somebody is Jesus and I know he's mine. Somebody loves me and he answers my prayers. I love somebody, I know he cares. Somebody tells me not to repine That somebody is Jesus and I know he's mine That somebody is Jesus and I know he's mine He is mine I like that ending too, wasn't that good? Amen. Well, amen. We're in our Bible Truth series, and again, Wednesday nights, we kind of move quick around here. A lot going on on Wednesday nights, but we'll do, or we'll get through as much as we possibly can tonight. But we're in our Bible Truth series, and we're still talking about the King. And uh, last uh, time we gathered together, uh, we talked about Judah, and we did a couple of things there, spoke a little bit about him, and just uh, the wonderful testimony that he uh, well, didn't have, but yet God used him in spite of it all and uh, then ultimately placed him in the line of the king. And we said that it began with Eve, continued with Shem, and then about 400 years later, God singles out Abraham. And from Abraham, we noted that Isaac and then Jacob, his son, would be the next in line. And from Jacob's son, of course, Judah was chosen, as we said, and uh, that's how things ended. So Eve, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah... And now tonight, I want to consider some of the unsung heroes that, well, could be overlooked by man, <clears throat> but are not overlooked by God. And I want to look about, I want to look at Rahab and Ruth tonight. <clears throat> I don't think we're going to get to both, but we're going to do our best, okay? But uh, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We think about Rahab and Ruth, and man, I mean to tell you, um, they're obviously... Those that are mentioned in the line of Christ, we get into this genealogy in the book of Matthew, and it's just interesting to see the kind of people that God uses along the way to accomplish His work and will, and I believe that in and of itself is a blessing and encouragement. So notice what it says in Matthew chapter 1, 
we read this genealogy, we'll just read through verse 6 tonight. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. That's kind of where we're at, right? That's kind of how far we've gotten. And Judas, it says, begot Phares and Zerah of Thamar. And Phares begot Ezram, and Ezram begot Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz, is what it is, of Rechab. And Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king. And so we see as we read through this, uh, we're going through this genealogy, we see a couple of names here that are somewhat uh, <clears throat> brought out for us. As you look at the genealogy, you realize there's a couple things taking place. First of all, uh, it ends up here, we ended up with Jesse, or should I say David. And of course, it said that Jesse is his dad. So we have David, then we have Jesse. But then before him was Obed, his dad. So basically, Obed was David's grandpa. And uh, Obed was the offspring of Boaz and Ruth. And that means that Boaz and Ruth were David's great-grandparents. And Boaz was the son of Salmon and Rahab, which means that David's great-great-grandparents were Salmon and Rahab. So David has great-great-grandparents, one of them is Rahab, and he has a great-grandparent, one of them is Ruth, and these are two women that are mentioned in this genealogy, and it's kind of interesting that they are and their backgrounds. I want to have a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to look at it just very quickly, but it's, um, it's really inspiring when we think about the kind of people that God uses. At least it is for me. And we touched on that a little bit with Judah as we spoke about his background and how God used him. And we're going to look at both Ruth and uh, Rahab as well for just a short time. Okay, so let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you and again, Lord, we are desperate in need of you. Lord, we can't do this without you. Now, Father, we do pray that you would just walk these aisles and that you would work in our hearts, our lives. May you take these Bible characters, which, Father, they're not really characters. They are personages. They live their lives, and now they have gone into the ground and become dust again, but they're, they themselves are living. Father, one day we'll be dust if you don't return, and Father, yet we'll be living. We thank you for that wonderful hope. Father, as we consider these ladies tonight and maybe, maybe even next week, depending on the time, Lord, we're asking that you would just encourage us as we view their lives, as we note their ministry, as we see how you use them so mightily. Now, Father, we need you tonight, and I'm just asking you once again to fill me with your spirit and allow me, Father, just to be a mouthpiece for you. And we'll thank you, we'll praise you as you work in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So Ruth, you know, has a book of the Bible named after her. That's pretty good, isn't it? I do too. But anyway... What are you laughing about? I do. But anyway, Ruth has a book of the Bible named after her. And, you know, as we said already, she'd be the great-grandma of David. Man, I mean, she was a Moabitess, a Moabite, if you will. And the Moabites were cursed people. And the reason they were cursed, we find in Deuteronomy 23, 4, is because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Baor, of Pethor, of uh, Mesopotamia, to curse thee. In spite of all of that, in spite of the fact that she was a Moabite, still God in his mercy and grace would bless Ruth for her faithfulness, and he would even include her in the line of the king, allow her to have offspring, so to speak, that would be in that line, I should say. Upon returning with Naomi to Jerusalem, after the death of her husband, God would orchestrate one of the world's greatest love stories. Boaz would act as what was called the kinsman redeemer, in which he would purchase the, literally the property of, and also raise seed to Emelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, He ends up marrying Ruth and he blesses them with a child by the name of Obed. And again, he would be listed in the genealogy of the king. And Obed, as we said, was the grandfather of David. That's an amazing display of God's grace. I mean, for this Moabite to be used to carry on the line of the king. What an amazing, amazing fact that is. But I believe that there's even a better example of this unmerited favor being extended. It's all grace, right? I mean, there's no way that Ruth could have been used in that capacity without the grace of God. And may I say, I think, as I mentioned, that there's probably not a better, one more better. We can better up one more on this one. That would be Rahab. Rahab, she was a Canaanite. She was a prostitute. Her story starts in Joshua chapter 2. After wandering for 40 years, Israel was prepared to take the land of Canaan. And of course, their first stop or their sights were first set on a, a city by the name of Jericho. Now, Joshua, we know, had sent in a couple of spies to spy out the land. We know how that turned out the first time, but these guys weren't about to get caught up in that mess. They found themselves actually doing their job and simply looking over the the land and coming back with a sit rep or situation report. And as they arrive there in Jericho, they're hoping that they're not noticed. But of course they were. And they spent uh, some time there. Of course, we know they entered the house of Rahab. And uh, her house was on the wall, the wall of Jericho. Unfortunately, as we said, they got kind of noticed, and as a result of that, the king goes and sends some uh, troops there to Rahab to turn over the spies, and of course, she bravely hides them in piles of flax on her rooftop. Well, before it's over with, they leave her home, and that night as the two spies were hiding out on the rooftop, she goes and gets them, and she makes a very bold claim, and she also makes a request. 
Turn, if you would, to Joshua chapter 2. And let's see what she says and then what she requests. Rahab the harlot. We have Bible stories about her, and uh, in particular because of this particular event. But that is not the pinnacle of her Bible success or spiritual victory. That's not where it ends for her. But notice what she says in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Joshua chapter 2 now, verse 12. Now therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have shewed you kindness, that ye will also shew kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token. And that ye will save alive my father and my mother and my brother and my sisters and all they have and deliver our lives from death. So right off the bat in verse 9, she acknowledges the superiority of Jehovah above her own gods and above the gods of their, of their land there. She makes that recognition. She understands that. She realizes that they're goners, so to speak. That no matter how hard they may seek to fight against Israel, it was, a, it was a, a futile cause because the God of Israel was behind them. She then asked the spies to spare her life and to spare the lives of her family. And she basically says, listen, I helped you, why don't you help me? I spared your lives, will you spare mine and my family?" And they promised to protect her. And they gave her a scarlet cord, if you will, to hang from her window. Safety would be guaranteed to her as long as that scarlet cord hung from her window. So Israel arrives. And of course we know tensions had to be rising pretty quickly in Jericho as they waited on the attack. Day by day, the Israelites would march around the city. Just march around the city one time. They'd then make their leave and set up camp. And then the next day, they'd come and march around the city. Make camp and then march around the city. And they did that for six days. Rahab all along keeping the scarlet cord in the window of her house. And then on the seventh day, Israel marched seven times around the city. And they shouted as loud as they could. And those massive walls of Jericho came tumbling down. They fell out and down. And every bit of the city and all its inhabitants were destroyed, except for Rahab and her family. They kept their word. Joshua chapter 6, verse 23. Turn there, would you? The Bible makes it clear that they were spared. Joshua chapter 6, verse 23. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brother and all that she had. And they brought out all their, her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. 
I don't know how big that little house was. I'm not sure. I can't imagine it was too awfully large, but I would bet it was standing room only. It sounds to me like there were a bunch of people in that room. God not only rescued Rahab and her family, but he would go on to place her smack dab into the center of Jesus' family tree. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 1, and there comes a point in verse 5 where it says, And Salmon begot Boaz of Rechab. Rechab is really of, of Rahab. Man, if any human had been tasked to choose those that would be in the line of the king, I don't think they would have likely picked or placed a displaced Moabite or a morally flawed harlot in the lineup. I don't think so. So what lessons can we learn from Rahab, who is in the lineage of Jesus Christ? I'm going to share just real three simple things very quickly, and then if we get through those, i got some other things, but we'll see where we get. Number one, God saves those with a past. God saves those with a past. See, listen, no matter what our past is, no matter what it whispers to us, no matter what it holds or what our past uh, uh, you know, is, it doesn't really matter. That's why Jesus was born. That's one of the reasons he came. Because of your past and my past. Because God knew we were sinners at the root, right? We're not really told the circumstances surrounding Rahab and her poor choices. I don't believe and I would hope that nobody would, would come and rally around Rahab and say, well, you just got to understand, it's okay for her. She's all right. Her lifestyle choices, that's her business. It's okay. No, I don't think any of us would rally around that. None of us would support those kind of life choices. Not only are they immoral, but they are also very dangerous. But we don't know what drove her to that place in her life. I mean... Was she simply seeking provision on behalf of herself and her family? Had her past abuse, had, had some kind of past abuse in her life wrecked her self-image, causing her to stoop down to a way of life she felt deserving of? Was she morally void and thus thought little of it? No big deal. I'm not sure exactly. What whispers did Rahab hear? I wonder if she heard the whisper of condemnation or possibly fear or worthlessness. Maybe she heard continually too many mistakes and had too many regrets and too late for change. Isn't that how the devil works in our lives too? Reminding us all the time why we just can't. The good news is, is that no choice we ever make, no scars ever inflicted, no drink ever taken, no words that have been cast out of our mouths, or no body that's been misused can keep us from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. See, our past is never good enough to earn God's salvation, nor is it shocking enough to keep us from it. 
isn't it funny? If we're not careful, we think we're shocking God, you know, almost. You don't know where I came from. You don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter, does it? Now, it may matter to you and I. It may matter to human beings. It may matter to those who hear the story and say, man, that was a really wicked person. And I'll tell you, honestly, after what they did, they need and deserve to go to hell. Don't think humans haven't thought those things, even Christians. But God doesn't think those things. I'm not saying it's right to think those things, but let's, let's be honest. There are human beings who might wish that on someone, but God would never. See, our past is never good enough to earn God's salvation, nor shocking enough to keep us from it. And you know, a good example of that is the Apostle Paul, huh? We think about what he did against God and the people of God, and yet the Lord Jesus willingly saved him. So first of all, God uses those with a past. But number two, God uses those, God saves those with a past. Excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. And God uses those with a past. Number two, he uses them. You know, maybe you can nod, maybe you can even say, hey man, when it comes to God saving anyone with a past. And most people in the Christian faith are excited to do so. But here's where we get stuck. Believing that God can use anyone with a past as well. Oh, save anyone, that's good. Okay, he can save the most vile sinner, but use anyone? That's where we struggle in our lives, isn't it? Again, the devil comes whispering and saying, you think God could use you? After what you said, after what you did, after how you've lived your life, after the way you've abused your body or those of others, I mean, you think God could use you? Even after we've been saved and You know how easy it is to make mistakes and to do the wrong thing and ultimately sin against God. And the devil comes whispering, doesn't he? Rahab is proof positive that God can use anyone no matter what. God used Rahab mightily despite her past. In the first battle he used to conquer, in the first battle used to conquer the promised land, God used Rahab to save the spies. He used her to save those spies. He used Rahab to save her family. He used Rahab to shape the character, the faith, and the godliness of a, of a son by the name of Boaz who would ultimately rescue a young Moabite widow by the name of Ruth. He did that. You know, i got to believe that Rahab was probably the best qualified to instill the kind of love and forgiveness and acceptance in a son that would ultimately meet a Moabitess. He'd look back and say, well, my mom was a... And don't think he probably hadn't heard that a few times in school. But yet mom was such a wonderful woman. Mom was such a wonderful 
we would call it Christian today. And he thought, God can do anything with anyone. Ruth, the Moabitess, is turned down by the closest kinsman redeemer. But Boaz says, oh, not me. I'll take her. I'll be glad to be her husband. Because I know what God can do in a life. I wonder what whispers might be keeping you from letting God use you mightily. I mean, what's the enemy bringing up from years ago or even last week to try and convince you that you're disqualified? We start strong in our Christian lives sometimes. We seem like we're, you know, we got the world by the tail, so to speak, but then all of a sudden we make horrible judgment. We sin against God. We do something against others and then we think to ourselves, well, I ruined it. I wrecked it all. And the devil's glad to come along and say, you sure did. You messed it all up. If it wasn't for you, God could have used you. It's never about us either way. It's always about him and us just yielding to him. Have you given the devil ground that Jesus has already taken. We look at Jesus' lineage. We look back in that lineage and we see people like Ruth and we see people like Rahab and we can't help but think God's super powerful and he's able to do exceeding abundantly of all that we ask or think. See, God... He saves those with a past. He uses those with a past. And finally, God redefines those with a past. He redefines them. As we read the scripture here just a few moments ago, the scriptures mention Rahab in the genealogy. She's most often referred to as Rahab the harlot. Throughout the word of God, normally harlots somewhere around when her name is mentioned. But not in Matthew's genealogy, it's not. And Solomon begot Boaz of Rechab, or Rahab. And by the way, that's not a problem. That's not two different people. That's just so you know that sometimes an Old Testament spelling and a New Testament spelling are a little different. It's not a problem. There is no memory of her being a harlot there. No one's bringing it back up. Nobody's reminding us again of what she used to be. It reminds me of that passage in 2 Corinthians when it says, Such were some of you. Such were. Nobody's reminding us now. As a matter of fact, the New Testament points out her faith, actually. Look over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. It says, by faith, chapter 11, verse 31 of Hebrews, 
By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Again, remember where this setting is set. It's, it's back there in, in Jericho. Uh, in, um, uh, my mind just went blank. Jericho. Jericho? Yeah, okay. And notice back there in Jericho again, she's referred to as the harlot Rahab. But notice what he's pointing out in Hebrews 11, faith. Can you imagine being in the hall of faith? Can you imagine your name being there? Because of your escapades, because of your effort, because of your investment in the cause of Christ? Here's Rahab. I want to look at, just again very quickly, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's look at verse 9. Again, as I think about this passage, I can't help but think about 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. But watch this. And such were some of you. You've got to understand that you say, but boy, I, I've messed up in a couple of those areas already, and I'm a Christian, and man, does that mean I lost my salvation? No, because when we go over there to Hebrews chapter 4 and we recognize that this, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, what it's saying is, is that the moment you get saved, your spirit is separated from your flesh. What you do in your flesh does not affect where you end up in heaven because it's no longer connected. Now you have that new man in you, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. That new man doesn't sin at all. But in this case, he goes on to say, and such were, he says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God, verse 11. And such were some of you. He's talking to the Corinthians. They were doing all these things. (laughs) They were a mess. They were a mess. You don't even want to take church doctrine out of the book of Corinthians because they were such a mess. They're not a good example of what a New Testament church is. They were so, so messed up. And he says, such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me. I go from being all of this mess to being all of this in the eyes of Christ, justified and sanctified and all these wonderful things. And Rahab the harlot was no longer the harlot anymore when we see her name listed in this genealogy. God had redefined Rahab from a fallen woman to a chosen woman, from a bad girl to a bride, from a mess to a mother, from a prostitute and this is a big word, you'll have to look it up if you have to, to a progenitor of the Messiah. God redefines you as well. 
He takes what you were and he says, that's not who you are anymore. You're somebody completely different. Because see, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. He redefines us. I have a list of things that he redefines, and I don't know if we'll even talk about it next week, but boy, I'll tell you what, it's a wonderful thing to be a child of God. And no matter how wicked and sinful and how wretched we may have been in our past, he redefines who and what we are. And that's not based on our behavior. That's based on His regenerating work in our life. He does that work. We ought to be aware of that. And as the Bible says, He began that good work in us and He'll perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. It's a work that was done. Regeneration was just an instant. But then there's this process and work that goes on in our life, molding us and making us into the image of Jesus Christ. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a wonderful thing. And so I look at this situation with Rahab. I consider Ruth and I think, man, God is such a God of mercy and grace. To include a Moabite, to include a harlot, to allow them to take part in the lineage of Jesus Christ, and God makes no apology for it. And neither should we. This is all God at work. What a wonderful thing it is to see God at work. Well, don't sell yourself short. Don't allow yourself to use excuses that the devil gives you for not being everything God intends you to be. We must live up to our potential. We must do our best to be everything God intends us to be. There are Gideons in the crowd tonight. Where will you be in a year or two? Will you still be hiding in the background, concealing the harvest? Will you be tearing down the idols of Baal and defeating the enemy as God intended? Are there some mighty men of valor in our midst tonight? I got to believe there are. But I believe that many mighty men of valor will never ever catch a glimpse of what they could be because they're listening to the whispers of Satan. And they're unwilling to pay the price. Maybe there are some roosts amongst us. Moabitus lived a cursed life. And yet God wants to use you to be a miracle. To bring about change. The devil's whispering, saying, nah, not you. It has to be someone else. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that our ears would be open to your leadership, that, Lord, we would not listen to the devil, we would listen to you. That, Lord, we would be convinced that you use 
the most vile and wretched sinner that no matter how long we've been saved, whether it's been for a short time or a long time, no matter how many mistakes we've made, no matter how many mess-ups we've been a part of, Lord, you can take all of it and use it to your good. You can still use us. Oh, we understand, Lord, that there are, there's a price to pay for consequences. We get all that. There are scars in our past. But, Lord, the truth is you wash us clean and that you can, even the believer that's made, uh, stepped in the wrong direction, you can turn around and use them again. Father, we do not have to be bound by our past. We do not have to be bound by our, our, our old ways. Lord, we can have victory tonight. You'll use us where we are. You'll allow us, Father, to be, Father, used in a mighty way if we'll just submit to you and surrender our life. Father, help us, Lord. I pray, Lord, there'd be some Gideons in our midst that would step up in the days, the coming days. I pray there'd be some Ruths that would step up. Lord, there might even be some Rahabs down the road. That's okay. That'd be wonderful. What a testimony of your grace and mercy. Father, help us now, Lord, we pray. We need you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head.